What should a Christian think what about does God abortion? Think about abortion? The whole Roe v. Wade. Should I see a counselor? Or or if I do, what are they going to tell me anyway? Are we living in the end times? The end times? What is deconstruction? Does, does God, God care, care if I vote for? Should a Christian be in politics with a healthy manner? Is it dumb to believe in God? Does God care about the environment that important? What does the Bible say about Is it okay to be gay? LGBTQ. Where do dinosaurs, dinosaurs fit in all this? How do I know no, if I'm good, good enough? Why do bad things happen to good people? Is it okay for a Christian Can to I smoke weed? What is God's will for my How do I know what God is calling me to do? What am I doing here? Why are women treated so poorly in the Bible? Why do all of the things happen all at the same time? I've heard of some Christians who are walking away from God. Do angels exist? Why do Christians get baptized and do dogs go to heaven? Is it a you asked for it. All right. Hello, everyone. Good to see you. Um, good to see everybody online or at Edgewood or Abingdon or Aberdeen. Hello, Mountain Road. That was a lot of questions, right? We're asking questions in this series, and so here's the deal. Um, I don't know what's on your mind today or if you're interested in what we're talking about today, but I'm going to get right to it and preach like I'm running out of time today, and you'll understand when I tell you the question. Are you ready for it? So are you ready for it? Here's the question. Are we living in the end times? That's why I said, are you ready for it? Get it? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm looking forward to this. I don't know if you are. There is a good discussion to be had here. And even if it's not on the top of your concerns, it is for some people, I know. But no matter what, there is a lot for everyone here. And it, uh, a lot that matters in the moment. And the best thing that we can all do is search out a biblical response. I'm going to try to help us do that. And I think we can do that without anyone getting left behind. <laughs> yes, Left Behind. That's, of course, a popular novel and movie series. Has a particular take on this matter of the end times. It tries to depict how it's all going to go down. I haven't seen them or read them myself. I did happen to notice that the Rotten Tomato score for the latest film was 0%. So... Not a very compelling reason to watch that movie, but this is a compelling question, and it's a question that's been around for a long time. And at certain times and places in history, it stirred up a little bit, a little bit higher in our collective consciousness. It has a more high-profile position, like in the late 90s when we were approaching what? The year 2000, and there was all kinds of concern about Y2K and what's going to happen with that, and some were just sure that it was the end of the world. That's when the Left Behind novels started to come out. Uh, and then, of course, especially for us Americans, we know we're 21 years from September 11th, 2001, the tragic day that no doubt had many of us asking these kind of questions, and it felt like the end of the world. We're weeping over this destruction. And in retrospect, it, it was the end of the world as we know it. So much has changed since then. And now here we are today, we've got a pandemic fresh on our minds and all the social unrest and the global conflict. And again, people are wondering, are these signs of the end? Actually, I just got an email this week, uh, or excuse me, no, two weeks ago. It was very confident about all this. It warned, more drought is coming and toxic algae will be the fulfillment of revelation of the water poison and the sea creatures dying. It said stuff about COVID and then reference to Daniel 10 and fighting the prince of Persia. Quoted Matthew 24, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. So this, is, this can be a little bit panic-inducing, right? Most of the predictions and projections of the end times that we've heard, they're pitched to us in this kind of a way. And they're dressed with biblical references. 
which makes it all the more alarming for people who pay attention to the Bible, people who consider the Bible to be foundational in their framing of reality. We're those people, right? We want to see things for what they are. We want to have a clear sense of reality. Does the Bible help us with that or not? We're going to find out, all right? Uh, So now, if we only had just a short time to work with, There are two one-second answers that you could give to this question, are we living in the end times? And they're both very biblical. And the first one is this. Are we living in the end times? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. You are actually on good biblical ground if you answer, I don't know. Here's what I mean. First, what we do know, what we do learn from the Bible is that uh, it, it focuses in on the story of Jesus. We learn that Jesus came, lived, died, was buried, rose, ascended, will come again. Okay? There, there is a, a future that the Bible is looking forward to. There's a destiny for the world, a future toward which the Bible points. And we're going to say more about that as we go along, but just note that right now it would only be natural for Jesus' followers to ask, well, when will that happen? When will that future be arriving? Paul was one of the first church leaders to address this, and he's writing to uh, people in 1 Thessalonians, and he says, now, brothers and sisters, he, he describes that hopeful future, and then he says, now, brothers and sisters, we do not need to write to you about the dates and the times, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You already know that you don't know. God is not operating with a countdown clock that everyone can see any more than a thief calls ahead to the homeowners, you know, giving him the ETA. No, no. Peter uses the same image for 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus himself in Revelation says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. And we'll talk more about Revelation. Matthew 24, therefore, Jesus says, keep watch because you do not know uh, the day on which your Lord will come. So Paul says, we don't know. Peter says, we don't know. Jesus says, you don't know. But do you know how many people over the years have said, oh, I know. I've got a chart and a map, and let's all sync our watches because here's how it's going down. And what is true about every single person that has said that they know? They've been wrong. Sometimes the Bible leads you to say, I don't know. That's an okay answer right here. There is another biblical answer, uh, one second long, that you could give, and it begins to sharpen our perspective about how the Bible treats this whole subject of the end times, and it's this. Are we living in the end times? Well, of course. Of course we are. What do I mean? Well, uh, look at the Bible's account of um, how Jesus comes to us, all right? The the writer of Hebrews gives this uh, sweeping view of history, and he says it like this. "In, in, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's the Old Testament. We have the record of that. But in these, what? Last days. He's spoken to us by his son. Something is happening in Jesus. There is a continuity with the unfolding of history to this point. But in Jesus, the world has turned a corner into the last days. Or you could say the end times. 
Peter said as much. Now, he had some explaining to do to make sense of all of this Jesus stuff and telling us what it was all about. Now, remember, Jesus came, lived, died, was buried, rose, ascended, will come again. We live between ascended and will come again. Now, it's not as if Jesus is absent right now. No, no, he just, he just changed forms. His spirit has been shared with all those who would welcome him. We spent the whole summer, if you were around here, talking about the fruit of the spirit. The presence of Jesus through the spirit brings beautiful and powerful things to life. Love, joy, peace, and more. And when the spirit first showed up in Jesus... Or, or excuse me, after Jesus ascended, there were these striking signs and this crazy unifying of language and everyone thought that everyone was drunk because they'd never seen anything like it before. And Peter has got to stand up and interpret what is going on. And he says, no, 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 these people aren't drunk. This is actually a sign of the times. This is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel who said back then in the Last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. We're in the last days. This is where it all was pointing. And new possibilities are now coming to life because of Jesus' resurrection and his spirit. Peter says elsewhere, you were redeemed from the empty way of life. By the precious blood of the Lamb, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. The end of the age is upon us, and a new world is being born. We are in the end of those times. When the lenses of the New Testament start to click into place, like if you go to the eye doctor and they put that big thing in front of your face and they rifle through the lenses and they get to clear vision, this is what the New Testament is designed to help us see. The Bible imagines an overlap of the ages, the present age and the age to come. And our current moment is playing out, well, Somewhere right there. In the time between the times, as some have said. Or in the now, but not yet. Jesus is here now through his spirit, but he's not yet fully here in the way that's promised. Well, when will he get here? Well, I don't know. But, of course, the end, or maybe we should say uh, the goal of history is already underway. And that's the precision that the Bible gives us when it comes to when. We're closer today than we were yesterday. Like Paul says, the Bible doesn't need to write about dates and times. It does, though, give us the encouragement and the strength to what? Be ready. Be awake. Be in touch with this reality and live with hope and faith in this time between the times. Are you still with me? Anyone left behind yet? That's one way to answer the question, are we living in the end times? Take two seconds. I obviously uh, embellished it a little bit. 
All right, now I know we got to move on. I, people are wondering about the wars and the pestilence and the earthquakes and all the violent images and what does all of that mean. And, and we'll get there. And we'll do it actually by looking a little bit more intently at the pictures and, and with the lenses that the Bible gives us. So we're going to erase this and we'll actually uh, start over here. Um, just like a, a Disney movie might begin with um, Once Upon a Time, and it would end with, and they live happily ever after. So the Bible begins with creation, and it ends with new creation. On the first pages of the Bible, there is the making of heavens and the earth. And on the last page of the Bible, there is the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And they're both very beautiful pictures, if you've seen them. There is life and goodness, and uh, it's just exploding with potential, and people are there in harmony with one another, and God's presence is there dwelling in, in fellowship with God's people, and just very fulfilling and satisfying, sparkling images, sparkling realities that I, I can't you know, capture it with a little drawing, but you just let my scratches stand for these pictures that we see. Okay. So the world has a destiny. It has a goal, and it's awesome. It's about new creation. That's where this thing is going. Now, you don't have to read the Bible to know that the luster of the first creation has begun to wear off a little bit, to put it mildly. Um, I've drawn a little something like this before. What we observe in very early on in the story is there is a rebellion. And things begin to spiral out of control. And it just gets chaotic and messy in a hurry. The humans that God made are supposed to rule over the beasts, but they become beastly themselves. Uh, they're supposed to be fruitful and, and multiply and uh, produce life on the earth, but instead what ends up multiplying is violence and destruction and chaos. What we're introduced to is sin and death are now making a mess of the good world that God made. And it's a very sad picture. Paradise, paradise is lost and it's ugly and unfortunately, this is not just a theological concept, not just a biblical concept. This is real for all of us. We've been wounded by the sins of others, and we too have added to the mess. The Bible presses us to reckon with reality. Now, God, like a, a loving uh, wife or husband who remains committed to a cheating spouse, God keeps his commitment to the world that he made. And as the Bible unfolds, it, it highlights both God's commitment to the new creation, which is marked by life and peace and joy. And so it highlights that. And it also highlights God's patient, loving work within the mess. God is not done with this 
mess. Wherever God finds people who are willing to trust him and love him back, I was like, I can work with that. The love and the light of God can start to shine through the dark places. God rebuilds and redeems and restores. God judges and beats back evil and puts it in its place and overcomes it with good. Amazingly, God's goodness can still be experienced. And we know this. We too have experienced that. I hope you have had an opportunity to thank God for his goodness recently. Now, I'm sure that for all of us, we have seen this, what happens in the Bible, this kind of cycle. And it happens in our own lives too. The ugliness returns and the tough stuff comes back and life doesn't look like we want it to and it just unwinds and it's like we're, we're diseased and we, we can't get rid of it. And yet God is still patiently bringing his goodness out of the ugly and allowing things to return. And so we get this cycle. We have this promise hanging out there. And yet death is still present. And it is this sad repeat that we witness. You've probably seen it in your own life. The Bible has in, in its pages. Are you still with me? I'm summarizing a lot, but where the Bible goes with all of this is to the Jesus story. Now, Jesus shows up, and he is clearly marked by all of the goodness and beauty of heaven. But he finds himself in this pressure cooker of earth. And, And it's like evil starts to crescendo and to build up. To, to, to come after him. And it's, uh, it's starting to unleash its worst on Jesus. It's wanting to erect another trophy of its dominance. It's ravenous and bloodthirsty, and it is uh, coming after Jesus in every way. Sin and death are doing its worst, and it's all focusing on Jesus. And, and there's this amazing thing going on here because we know who Jesus is. And he could at any time, he could respond with, like a, like a lion, he could come and, and take out his enemies. But what we get when we see Jesus is like a lamb. He was led to the slaughter. In his humiliation... He was deprived of justice, for life was taken from him. He himself bore our sins on his body. Or, like the writer of Hebrews puts it, tipping the hand to where everything is going, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. And Hebrews says it this way because three days later, a new world was born. Okay, slow down now because that, uh, we, we made a quick turn and there's nothing about the trajectory that we were on that prepared us for that. And the New Testament is like, I know. I I know. That's why the New Testament is such a gift to us, because it's trying to help us see these things clearly. 
I said earlier, Peter has some explaining to do after all of this because what we clearly all just saw was a poor Jewish man executed as a criminal by the most powerful empire in the world, and they put his corpse in the ground. It would take nothing short of a resurrection to get us to perceive anything more than that going on here. And that is exactly what Peter witnessed. And not just Peter, but the 12 disciples and more than 500 people at one time, and James and all the disciples, and then me, Paul says. List them all out there in 1 Corinthians 15. And as those witnesses tried to make sense of this, Jesus died, Jesus is alive, Jesus has ascended, Jesus' spirit is now here. And the lenses keep clicking and clicking until finally arriving to clear vision, three things come vividly into focus. Number one, what's true of Jesus can be true of us. Good news. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, what? The new creation has come now. Romans 5, we were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life even while evil rages on. Number two, what has happened to Jesus is a sign of what God is going to do for the whole creation. Good news. Just as this one man was raised from the dead, Romans 8, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Jesus is an advanced sign of that. Number three, so also the spirit of Jesus in us is a sign of new creation. It is a sign that new creation has arrived. And that same spirit gives us the strength to live as new creatures in the midst of the old world. Right now, Paul says to the church, now it is God who makes you stand firm in Christ. He puts his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Peter encourages the church. He says, look, be alert. Be of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings, but yet the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. We are living in a painful place. You know it. I know it. This is not the world as we wish it to be. 
But because of Jesus, nothing that evil and sin and death can throw at us can stop new creation from breaking into this old world and transforming sadness into joy, turmoil into peace, chaos into order, addiction into freedom, death into life. It is, of course, happening right now in Jesus. And I don't know how long it will be before we fully break through. But, and now I am all worked up and finally arriving at the point. The gospel of Jesus isn't meant to start us clamoring on about signs of the end of the world. It is meant to transform us into signs of the beginning of a new world. The story that we're a part of isn't meant to get us going crazy about signs of the end of the world. It says you now are being transformed and that is a sign of a new world beginning. New creation is the thrust of the story the Bible tells. It's the goal of history. And as people who have been made new right now, we are witnesses, reflections, living testimonies. Dare I say TikTok video. We are like those things expressing that a new world has begun. We testify to it. Heaven is taking up residence on earth. And it is shining vividly for everyone to see when we forgive and serve and love and care and celebrate with one another and comfort one another and heal and persevere through hard times and eat together, young and old, rich and poor, black and white. It all tells a story that a new world is being born. We see it now in part, but its fullness is guaranteed. When? I don't know. But is it real? Of course it is. Look around. Has anyone been left behind yet? Now that's a lot. Interlude. If you missed it, let me just say it again to those who need to hear it. You can be made new. You can be made new. You, you can't actually deal with the sins of what you've done and what's been done to you. It's far too much to bear for you, but not for Jesus. We're about to turn to the book of Revelation, but let, let me just jump forward and extend to you the invitation that's on the last page of the Bible. Revelation 22. Let the one who is thirsty... Come, let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Let's make uh, one, one final move, and we'll take a look at a little bit in the book of Revelation. And as we do that, you can think about how would you tell a story like that? How would you tell it to people who were suffering under the boot of an evil empire? Who were surrounded by signs in the government, in the marketplace, in the public square, and everywhere, really, that seemed to be saying, God ain't here, 
and you don't matter, and we're in charge. How would you tell this story to people who uh, claim to follow Jesus but who are living lives of luxury at the expense of the poor and have joined in with everyone else in multiplying violence and greed and idolatry? You might find that you need to make the point pretty vividly and pretty forcefully in order to be heard. Your message might need some gravity to it and a full dose of hope and some creativity and even some stealth just in case the story falls on the ears of the powers that be and they don't see it as good news and they start making more bad news for you. You might find that picture language does the best job of bringing the message to life. And that's basically what you get in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. I would recommend to you for further study, um, reading Revelation responsibly. It's a good book by Michael Gorman. I think it's accessible. And uh, you might find that very useful if you want to study that a little more. Or uh, the Bible Project videos and podcasts. I think those are always great resources. They cover a lot more than I can in, in just a little time that we have left. Uh, but right now, okay, take a break from all the Bible stuff, right? Um, let's imagine that the Ravens are in the Super Bowl. So this is hypothetical, of course, obviously. Um, they're, they're down six points with the ball, and there are seven seconds left. And a jackrabbit takes the snap, and he's darting all over the field. And every second the ticks off is emphasized with a loud gong from a big Ben-looking kind of a clock. And the defense turns into bears, and they're chasing the rabbit. And then more animals come onto the field, lions and Bengals and eagles and panthers. And at the sixth gong, they all pounce on the jackrabbit, and it looks like he's going down. But suddenly, the breath of power from the spirit of number 52 fills the rabbit's lungs, and he bursts out of their grip and dives into a big pool of Gatorade. And then a Royal Farms cannon comes and shoots the ball through the uprights up to the moon, which is now the face of that Big Ben clock, and it gongs for the seventh time, explodes, and rains down confetti on all the cheering fans. Now, do you know what's going on? Do you know what's going on? What, what is happening? They won. There you, that is a very insightful word right there. They won. Now, telling the story, that, that has an effect on you, right? I guess if you're a Ravens fan. If you're not, you don't care. Now, is that what you would have seen if you were watching video camera footage of the game? Is that what you have seen? No, you wouldn't have seen that. Who's the jackrabbit? Lamar, Lamar Jackson. Who's the Royal Farms Cannon? Justin Tucker from all the commercials. What's the spirit of number 52 all about? Who's that? Ray Lewis. He's a past player. He's not even on the team anymore, but his image is layered into the present moment to make a point. Who are the Ravens playing? You might guess the bears. We actually, we don't know for sure. That's a likely answer, but then there's more animals there. What do they signify? Not really sure. Maybe those are teams that the Ravens had beaten previously. Maybe they represent the whole NFL. It's like Lamar against the world. Maybe all of that is true. So there's some ambiguity, but you got the point. We won, right? And here's the deal. Revelation works a lot like that when it goes about telling this story. And, and I'll remind you, that I've already told this story twice with two different sets of images. And Revelation 
does the same kind of thing. It uses lots of fantastic images, picture language to tell this story multiple times. And here's some things we've got to understand um, as we ask our questions about the end of the world. As uh, Revelation layers in these multiple pictures, now it's not setting them to a timeline that is intended to be charted on a map leading sequentially to the end of the world. Any more than the two runs through the story that I went through are designed to be lined up sequentially. And, And there's nothing about Revelation's message or the type of literature that it is that should lead us to expect that it's describing stuff that we would actually see if we were watching video camera footage. We're not actually waiting for a beast to come up out of the sea. Beasts are a common way to refer to uh, representing uh, evil empires, of which the relevant one in Revelation is, any guesses? Rome. Yes, someone quietly said that. They weren't sure if they could, you know, get there. But yes, it's Rome. Most of the reference points in the book of Revelation are to the first century in the Roman Empire. It was a letter, after all, written Just like Ephesians, just like Colossians, it was a letter written to specific people who were there in danger of losing hope because of suffering or in danger of losing faith because of opulence. And Revelation says that empire, that beast that has a grip on you, its source is from the deep abyss of evil. And yes, it looks like it's winning the day. Yes, it looks like that. And yes, we see those kinds of things too, those evil forces, and they look like they're winning the day. It's part of living in this age. But who is ultimately victorious? The lamb who was slain is introduced in Revelation 5. That image is replayed multiple times for effect, and it changes. He's the same one as the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, whose robe is dipped in his own blood. This is not video camera footage, but we can see some things clearly, can't we? And it's meant to give us hope and to encourage faith. The email I got about the the toxic algae and the the sea creatures dying, That's not something that Revelation is lining up in a sequence of final terrible events that leads to the end of the world. No, it's telling a story about the reality of evil that we're actually pretty familiar with. And it's doing it by rebooting images of the plagues in Exodus. You've got to be familiar with that story. Uh, What's going on in Exodus? Oh, right, there was an empire setting itself up against God and oppressing God's people. Go figure. Does that sound like anything that happens in this world? And what did God do? God acted with full force against their stubbornness. This is a decreation story. Ten plagues. God dismantled evil and saved his people through the blood of the Lamb. That past image is layered into the Jesus story where God was defeating not just a beastly nation, but the dragon, that ancient serpent, the the, the source of the beast's power. Jesus' blood and death won the victory of life and peace. That happened, that is happening, and its effect is carrying on into the future. Godless endeavors like the Roman Empire or future world powers or my own idolatry, all of that will eventually collapse in on itself. We see that. We live that. Evil takes its stand against God 
but it cannot stand forever. So don't trust the lie of power and greed and wealth and dominance as a savior. Trust the lamb who wins a victory in weakness and faithfulness. There's no final battle. No battle of Armageddon. Read read about Armageddon in Revelation 16. The kings gather and the next verse says it is done. The lamb has conquered. We already know that. At least five times in Revelation, armies gather for battle, but there's no fighting. The rider on the white horse defeats evil with his sword, yes, in Revelation 19, but it's the sword coming out of his mouth. What might that refer to? His powerful word. With his word, God creates. With his word, Jesus decreates and defeats evil. But Jesus talked about wars and rumors of war. Yes, that was in Matthew 24, and he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And he advised people, then run for the hills, because if you fight for this temple, you are not fighting God's battle. History is filled with the escalation of evil. And battles rage on today in our homes, in our marriages, and in our neighborhoods, and between nations. And they will continue to do that, sadly. But Revelation is not designed to put us on the lookout for toxic algae or viruses or earthquakes or wars that are signaling, oh, the end is near. I mean, those things are characteristic of life in this age. We know that. And we lament that. And more of them will still come. And may God hasten the day when he will put a stop to it. But right now, Revelation is bidding us to come and follow the Lamb who wins through sacrificial love and brings a whole new world to life. When we stand firm in that, we become a sign of the beginning of a new world. The essence of biblical hope is about God bringing that new world near. That's the final vision. We're not raptured to heaven. Heaven comes to earth. Rapture is not a word in the Bible. I've lost my mic in here. Okay, but the people watching out there can still hear me, and I'm going to keep going. Hopefully you can hear me in the room. As when I said rapture is when that happened, so that's interesting. But um, rapture is not a biblical word. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we, it says we meet Jesus in the air, but the image is of us going out to meet a conquering king and usher him back to the city where we will dwell with him forever. And while we're at it, there's no antichrist in Revelation. The letters of John talk about many antichrists already in the world. So it's not Ronald Reagan. It's not the Pope. Anyone can be antichrist if they want to. It doesn't mean that they're fulfilling a specific end times prophecy. What the end is about is the lamb leading us into what is a garden, but it's more than a garden. It's a garden city. And there is... No more suffering, no more crying, no more pain. The evil one is burned up. The beast is burned up. Death itself is burned up. And nothing impure will enter the city. 
And then the angel showed me. It was a river of the water of life. It was clear as crystal. And it was flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves on the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord their God will be with them and be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Those who are suffering right now need to know the way the world is is not the way that it will be. Revelation uses the word soon so often. It, it says it's coming soon. And we cry out, how long, O Lord? We live as in the pains of labor for a new world to be fully birthed. Stand firm in hope. And those who are careless or callous or complacent or just downright evil, you need to know the world as it is is not the world as it will be. Things aren't always what they seem even right now. The day is coming soon when everything that sets itself up against the Lamb will be brought down. Nothing impure will enter the city. But the leaves of the tree are for your healing. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.